You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we're considering the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3-4, article 17. And in connection with that, we have a scripture reading from Acts chapter 8. Let's now turn in our Bibles to that portion. We'll begin reading in the middle of verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed people everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness, and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, And on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, 
queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Let's now read Article 17 of Chapter 3-4. Here we confess the use of means. The almighty working of God, whereby He brings forth and sustains this, our natural life, does not exclude but requires the use of means, by which He, according to His infinite wisdom and goodness, has willed to exercise His power. So also the aforementioned supernatural working of God, whereby He regenerates us, and no way excludes or cancels the use of the gospel, which the most wise God has ordained to be the seed of regeneration and the food of the soul. For this reason, the apostles and the teachers who succeeded them reverently instructed the people concerning this grace of God to His glory and to the abasement of all pride. In the meantime, however, they did not neglect to keep them by the holy admonitions of the gospel under the administration of the word, sacraments, and discipline. So today, those who give or receive instruction in the church should not dare to tempt God by separating what He in His good pleasure has willed to be closely joined together. For grace is conferred through admonitions. And the more readily we do our duty, the more this favor of God who works in us, usually manifests itself in its luster, and so his work best proceeds. To God alone, both for the means and for their saving fruit and efficacy, all glory is due throughout eternity. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, if you happen to take a trip into the mountains this holiday season, as I'm sure many of you will, you can't help but stand in awe of God and His creative handiwork. Just driving, for example, through the Coquihalla Pass, 
as many of us have done and will do, you can't help but be amazed at the beauty of the mountainsides, the creeks, the rivers, the ravines. It fills you with awe and you say to yourself, what a creation and what a creator we have. Now it's interesting that the canons of Dort mention creation a number of times. Parallels are drawn between the creation of the physical, natural world and the spiritual recreation in believers. Article 12 of chapter 3-4 tells us that, quote, regeneration is not inferior in power to creation. Article 15 speaks about God calling into existence the things that do not exist. Again, that's an allusion to creation. And now we have Article 17, which also makes the connection. And it makes sense. At the beginning of the universe, God spoke and things came into being. And so at the first, then, God chose to use a means or a way to create. The means or the way that He chose was His Word. His command. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And so on. And we believe that God not only created everything at the beginning, He also continues to sustain and uphold everything. Here too, He uses ways or means to carry out His will. He chooses to use means to create new life and to sustain the life that is already there. Here we can think of things like the relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. God has ordained that as the means by which new life should be created. As for the sustenance of life, we can think of means like the the light of the sun, apart from which very little could survive. God uses different ways and means to carry out His will in the physical realm. And it's the same with spiritual life. Here too, God uses means or ways to carry out His work of grace in the lives of those He has chosen to eternal life. As we consider that teaching this afternoon, we're going to answer three questions. First of all, what are those means? And second, how does God use them? And then finally, what are we to do with them? Article 15 works with this idea of there being two different aspects to creation. There is the initial creation at the beginning, where God created everything in six days. But then there is also the continuing maintenance or preservation of that creation. Again, something that's true in the physical realm, but it's also true when we consider the new life in Christ. We read this in article 17. So also the aforementioned supernatural working of God whereby He regenerates us in no way excludes or cancels the use of the gospel which the most wise God has ordained to be the seed of regeneration and the food of the soul. Maybe that sounds a little bit complicated. Let me try and translate that for you, if you will. God's work of grace is making people into new creations in Christ. He does that 
through the use of the gospel. The gospel has been ordained by God to be two things for us. First of all, the seed of regeneration. And when the canons use that expression, they're alluding to 1 Peter 1 and 2. And the second thing God has ordained it to be is the food of the soul, something to sustain and nourish it. So God's means to regenerate people is through the gospel. Elsewhere in the canons, we confess that it is the preaching of the gospel. Now, when we think about the preaching of the gospel, we usually associate it with what goes on here in a worship service. And it's true for most of us. It is through the weekly worship, through the preaching of the Word that takes place from this pulpit, or maybe other pulpits, that we have been initially regenerated. God has worked through the preaching of the Word from the pulpit. But we cannot restrict it to that. To do so would not only go against what we read in Scripture, but also what we see in our experiences. Let's start with Scripture. In Scripture, we have Acts chapter 8. At the beginning of the chapter, there was a time of persecution following the martyrdom of Stephen. And then we read in verse 4 that those who had been scattered, what were they doing? They were preaching the Word wherever they went. They didn't look for churches with pulpits. They simply spread the good news everywhere. And God used their witness to bring about many new lives. And then we have Philip, the evangelist. Philip wasn't an apostle. There was an apostle named Philip, but that's somebody different. Philip the evangelist, he wasn't an apostle, though he had been appointed as one of the seven. He had a preaching ministry. And his preaching ministry didn't involve worship services and pulpits. He preached in Samaria to crowds. And he also witnessed privately to people like the Ethiopian eunuch as well. And God used his words to create new life. So if we just look at this one chapter, and there are many others that we could look at as well, We cannot insist that God only uses the preaching of the gospel by a minister in a worship service to create new life. Well, He does that, for sure. But not only there. And we see that in our experiences as well. Take our missionaries, for instance. Sometimes a mission field will have worship services. Unbelievers will come to a worship service on a mission field and sometimes they will be converted under the preaching of the Word that takes place from a pulpit in a mission church. But more often than not, missionaries see people converted as they talk in their homes. As they talk while they're they're giving somebody a ride somewhere. Or perhaps something like an informal Bible study. Now, these things are especially true in the initial stages of a mission work where there may not be any official worship services. This teaches us to be careful about insisting that new life is only created under the official preaching of a minister in a worship service. That sounds nice, but in real life, it doesn't always happen that way. In Scripture, it doesn't happen that way. 
It is the word of the gospel that God uses. And that word can come to us in a variety of ways. The point is, new life is created through the word, through the gospel. This is the seed of regeneration that gets planted in the elect. But the gospel is more than that. It's also the food for the soul. When God has created a new life, when a new life springs up from the seed that has been planted, that new life, just like a plant, needs to be watered and fed, so also that new life needs to be fed and needs to be sustained. That happens through the Word. And particularly through the Word as it is preached. When the whole counsel of God is being proclaimed and taught, God works with His Holy Spirit to bring believers to greater levels of maturity. This is why the apostles and those who followed them admonished the believers to remain under the administration of the Word. But there was also the administration of the sacraments. Sacraments are also a means of grace for believers. They are a way in which God graciously sustains our spiritual life. This morning, we had the blessing of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Through this visible and through this tangible preaching of the gospel, God confirms that His Word is true. His promise is real. He accommodates Himself to our weakness and in so doing, graciously gives us strength. There's not only Lord's Supper, there's also baptism. In Acts 8, believers in Samaria and also the Ethiopian eunuch, they all received the sign and seal of baptism. Throughout their lives, after that point, they would be able to look back and be reminded of God's promise and God's faithfulness, His grace. Well, for us too, most of us were baptized as infants. So we may not remember it. But we have the testimony of our parents and others that it really happened. And whenever we watch another infant being baptized in the congregation, in a way, we relive our own baptism. We're again reminded through this visible preaching of the gospel that God is my God. He graciously made promises to me that He will never forsake. He set His name upon me. So the first two means of grace here in Article 15, the Word and the sacraments. The final one is discipline. How is discipline a means of grace? Usually, we associate discipline with being something negative. But in the Bible, discipline is meant to be a positive tool, a positive tool meant to lead someone to repentance. In Matthew 18, the Lord Jesus speaks of winning your brother over. Now that's the goal. Discipline is meant to be a way that God graciously brings back a sinner from the brink of destruction. And that's why also in Acts 8, the Apostle Peter, he wasn't content to let Simon the sorcerer go and just leave him alone in his sin. But instead, he admonished him to repentance. And like with Simon the sorcerer, it can also happen today that 
people outwardly appear to be believers. But in reality, they're hypocrites. They don't really have faith in the Lord Jesus, even though they're, they're members of the church. Sometimes when that hypocrisy gets exposed, as often it does, church discipline will be the means that God uses to bring these people to initial faith, to believe in the Lord Jesus for the first time, to bring them to repentance. But this will come through the Word being applied through discipline. There too, the Word is the seed of regeneration. Now to summarize, Article 15 speaks about three means of grace, the Word, sacraments, and discipline. Now let's move on to briefly consider the question of how God uses these means in our lives. Well, the first way is in initial regeneration. This is especially where the Word does its work. As the Gospel is preached each Sunday, God is at work creating new life in us and among us. As we share the good news throughout the week with our unbelieving co-workers, our fellow students, our family and friends, God is at work to make new creations in Christ. As I said, this is especially the domain of the Word, the communication of the Gospel, the, the truth of the Bible about Jesus Christ. However, we can't say that the sacraments are intended for that purpose. You know, in the past, there have been people who taught that baptism actually regenerates a person. We call that teaching baptismal regeneration. Well, our confessions don't allow that view of baptism. Baptism is a means of grace. Baptism is the signing and sealing of God's promise. But it is not the means by which God regenerates us. Initial regeneration takes place through the Word. What Peter calls the imperishable seed, the living and enduring Word of God. The second way God uses the means of grace is in sanctification. Sanctification, if we define it, is a process. It's the process by which God more and more makes us holy. Another way of describing it is growth in the Christian life. It's God's will for believers that they should grow. Second Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes people will be heard to say that they, they've reached a point in their spiritual development where they're not really growing, but they're not really backsliding either. Kind of flatlined, if you want to put it that way. Well, let's reconsider that. If it is God's will that we grow, and we're not growing, that's actually a sort of backsliding in itself. In reality, brothers and sisters, there is no middle ground. There is no plateau in the Christian life. It's up or down. Either you're growing in the Lord or you're backsliding and you're drifting away from Him. The Word 
is a means by which the Lord helps us to grow spiritually. When we read and when we study the Scriptures on our own, God works through that to strengthen our relationship with Him. When we read the Bible in our family worship or our family devotions, God uses that to build us up as well. And finally, when we give careful attention to the reading and to the preaching of the Word, God is there with His Holy Spirit, working us over into the people that He wants us to be. The sacraments, too, are a means of spiritual growth. When we have our children baptized, we're brought to consider again the richness of God's promises to them and to us. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We confess in Article 33 of the Belgic Confession, we believe that our gracious God, mindful of our insensitivity and weakness, has ordained sacraments to seal His promises to us and to be pledges of His goodwill and grace towards us. He did so to nourish and sustain our faith. There you see the purpose of the sacraments. To feed the faith that is already there. To strengthen it. To help us grow closer to the Lord. And finally, we have church discipline as a means to lead us forward. When we are backsliding, God has first of all given to us brothers and sisters. Though it doesn't always work the way that it should, the church of Jesus Christ has mutual discipline. Christians don't just let other Christians backslide without saying anything about it. Because we care for one another. And we care enough to admonish. We care enough to exhort one another. And when that doesn't work, then God has also given us elders to admonish us. The elders are shepherds of God's flock and Part of their task is to call the wayward back. Their task is to encourage us as a congregation to grow in the Lord so that He continues to receive more glory through us. So the grace and the means God has appointed to receive that grace and live in that grace, they belong together. The fathers of Dort remind us that we cannot separate them. It's also worth noting, if you haven't already, that these means of grace come to us through the church. In fact, the Belgic Confession describes these, these three things described as means of grace in the Canons of Dort. The Belgic Confession calls them the marks of the true church. The Bible describes the church as our mother, our spiritual mother. She's the one who gives birth to us through the Word. She also nurtures us. And in that way, that, that nurturing, the church can also be described as the dining room of the Holy Spirit. The place where we are fed spiritually through the Word, through the sacraments, through discipline. So in the end, when we talk about grace and we talk about the means of grace, we need to keep our eyes on the place of the church as well. God has appointed means for us to receive His grace and live out of His grace. And those means normally exist within the church.
Well, let's now turn our attention to the final question of what we are to do with these means. Well, there are two different answers to this question. The first answer has to do with the office bearers in the church, specifically the elders, and we'll include the pastors as well. The elders of the church have to be diligent in admonishing the congregation to make use of the means of grace. Our calling is to make sure that the congregation knows how important these things are for their spiritual development. We can never downplay the means of grace, whether the word, the sacraments, or discipline, as if these are optional, as if these are add-ons, extra things that we do, but they're not really strictly necessary. The congregation needs sound leadership to point them to the means of grace because those means of grace, in turn, point them to the God of grace and point them to Christ Jesus, His Son. And as we do this, as the canons of Dort say, God's work moves forward in the best possible manner. So there is a responsibility for the elders But each member of the congregation also has a calling to diligently use these means of grace. Now, we could come up with all kinds of examples, but I just want to use one this afternoon. That has to do with the preaching of the Word. It's always encouraging to see people taking notes during during the sermon. It's a great way to use this means of grace to its maximum potential. Now, there are many good and positive things to be said for note-taking during sermons. And one of, one of the, the best things is that it helps you to focus. Now, I know how easy it is to hear the pastor say something, and then you start thinking about that, and then that thought leads you to something else, and then on to something else, and before you know it, you're thinking about the soccer game this week. Now stop thinking about soccer. Don't go any further with that thought. See how hard it is? But if you're taking notes, you're helping yourself to pay attention. Now I know this might not work for everybody. Especially, think of uh, people with young children. If you've got small children with you in church, it may be very difficult to take notes. But for the rest of us, why not give it a try? See if this helps you to make a more effective use of this means of grace which God has given to you to help you to grow. And to help you in that, you should have found a, a handout with some tips in your, in your mailbox today. And when we're all diligent about the means of grace, there is a wonderful result. And that result is that God is glorified. The whole point of the canons of Dort is to direct us to the praise of His glory. The Word, the sacraments, discipline, they're all designed to point us to that end. That's why this chapter of the canons ends with these words of praise. In this chapter, we've been reflecting on man's total inability We've also been reflecting on God's efficacious calling of His elect, His irresistible grace. We have nothing to contribute. God does everything for our salvation. 
He provides the means. He makes the means effective. And He gives the saving fruit. So indeed, we confess that glory is due to Him now and always. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.